You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Scott Wallace is a journalist who has written for National Geographic, Newsweek, and Harper's, and a photographer whose work has appeared in Smithsonian, Outside, and Sports Afield. He's appeared on CBS, CNN, and the National Geographic Channel. His new book is The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. Thank you for joining me, Scott. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Scott, this is a really amazing adventure that you went on. This is uh, uh, definitely the analog that anybody who picks this, up this book is going to think of is Heart of Darkness, ap- Apocalypse Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> I, talk about uh, how you first um, got this assignment. This is, uh, you know, this is not the kind of thing that everybody gets to do. Uh, talk a little bit about your background and what brought you to the attention of those who thought, hey, I want to send this guy into the place where there are bullet ants. <laughs> well, I had spent uh, many years as a correspondent in Central America during the 1980s, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Panama. Um, I had um, some pretty extensive experience covering um, conflict, combat in the jungles, uh, the tropical forests of um, South and Central America. And in later years, I worked covering indigenous issues and a number of stories involving the um, overlap of conflict over resources in remote areas with indigenous people who are kind of holding down the front lines against the advance of bulldozers and drill rigs. And uh, I had spent a good bit of time in the Amazon. And so when this uh, opportunity arose, and uh, National Geographic was looking for somebody um, to go on this journey. They called me and asked me if I wanted to go. Now, when you prepare to go to the jungle, typically you want to have some time to do so. Alas, that was not the case for you, was it? They pretty much said, uh, time to go. Uh, Yeah, that's that's right, especially on a trip like this of such long duration where you're going to be in the jungle for weeks, even months, as it turned out. Um, You want to have some time to get ready. But this call came to me. I had to be there in five days. This expedition that I joined was, we had already departed from the border of Peru, Colombia, and Brazil, a place called Tabatinga. And I had to scramble very quickly to catch up. And so I raced through stores trying to buy things and get things done, but it was all very last minute, very hasty. A lot of a lot of things fell through the cracks. Talk a little bit about the kind of preparations you were used to making as opposed to the kind of preparations you found up making, ended up making, and then how you felt like when you ended up showing up in this kind of <laughs> middle of nowhere. Yeah, well, usually, you know, I keep pretty extensive lists of the things that I'm going to need. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with days in advance or weeks in advance, I'll start laying out you know, lists of what I need to buy, what I already have, but are, is packed away in different places that I need to get to, um, the medicines I'm going to need, going to doctors, all that kind of stuff. Um, but in this instance, I was just kind of thrown into this. And as I scrambled to, to catch up, really, uh, I forgot a lot of things. And I really felt like, frankly, I felt like an amateur showing up 
on the scenes of this expedition with a, a bunch of really just thrown together kit that that was totally inadequate to the to the expedition I was about to embark on. When you went there, you were on your way there. You were joined by a, a photographer, uh, Nicholas Raynar. Correct. I, and so, tell us a little bit about meeting him because he's quite a character, and that's one of the things I think you do well in this book, is that. This is not just a kind of a, a dry news recitation. This is really an adventure. You create characters. There's a plot. Uh, so talk about uh, meeting this Reynard, and, and this is the first character you meet. This, was he the first, your first intimation that this was going to be more than just like a news reporting gig? Um, well, I, I guess I had a hint that it was going to be a little bit more than that, but I did meet Nicholas in Manaus, it, which is basically the capital of the Amazon, the Brazilian Amazon. And um, the way we met, he was pounding on my um, hotel room door at 7 in the morning after I had gotten in on an overnight flight that came in around 3 in the morning, burst through um, the door into my room in this whirlwind, and we got to get going, you know. Uh, we've got many things to do. We were actually going to get a plane from Manaus later that day to Tabatinga, which is 800 miles to the west. And um, I had hoped to get a few extra hours of sleep, but that was not to happen. And it turns out, so Nicholas was a, like a very enthusiastic follower and friend of Sidney Pozuelo, the main character of my book and the leader of the expedition. And they were very close. And from the get-go, I have to say, I didn't really trust Nicholas very much. He was far more gung-ho about all of this than I was. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of sensed that he was, um, he was, um, didn't have a great deal of a sense of irony about himself or the situation. So that made, it made for a difficult relationship at times, but... You know, he was uh, he was very, very enthusiastic, and in many instances, that enthusiasm was infectious. Uh, Dennis Hopper to Marlon Brando and, uh, with, <laughs> with Sidney Pozuelo playing uh, Colonel Kurtz. Uh, mm. How much did you know about Sidney before you went on this journey? Had you met him before? I, I had met him 10 years earlier during the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. I had interviewed him in a private apartment you know, he uh, he was somebody I, I knew about and respected and admired. He was a one-of-a-kind character. I didn't really know what it would be like to spend, you know, weeks on end in the jungle with him. Uh, I knew he was extremely smart and committed and courageous and dedicated. Um, I didn't know some of the sort of darker things about him until we got into the jungle. Now, he was the the follower on of a tradition of some, you know, other well-known Brazilian explorers. And I'd like you to talk about the the, the Villaboas brothers. And, yes. and, and because they are really, this is, uh, I think it, one of the things this book does well is to give us your adventure, but at the same time feed us the history so we understand the backstory, even as we're enjoying your nightmarish uh, adventures with bullet ants and spiders the size of a softball <laughs> right yeah well, thank you um yeah so Pozuelo comes out of a tradition really like a, a more than a hundred year long tradition of wilderness scouts who are also indian rights activists adventurers romantics really for the the, the grandfather of this entire movement was somebody named um, candido rondon and then the Vilas Boas brothers followed in his footsteps. But 
that this is a movement of um, basically agents of contact who would go deep into the bush to contact Brazil's uh, wild Indian tribes and pacify them, uh, gain their trust, usually by showering them with prodigious quantities of gifts until they accepted contact. And the whole point was, with Rondon, it began with the idea was, let's um, contact the Indians to integrate them into the national society and give them an equal chance to become full-fledged members of the Brazilian nation. And what the Villas Boas brothers kind of had a little bit of a different take on it by the time they came along in the late 40s, early 50s. Rondon was early 20th century, beginning of the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. In the mid-20th century, the Villas Boas brothers, as, uh, as penetration roads entered the Amazon and as more tribes were being contacted and more settlers were pouring into the Amazon, they had the idea that it would be best if the Indians could actually maintain land and their traditions apart from white society, and they would move Indians out of the way of the advancing frontier into reserve areas. And Pozuelo grew up uh, with them as his mentors, but he took a different tact later. You arrive, and when you when you get there, you're with uh, Reynard. Talk about um, meeting the rest of this crew, which is a... It, these are not the kind of people that you're going to meet down in the corner bar, are you? <laughs> Even if you go to the corner bar in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. No, no, indeed. So this was an expedition of mm-hmm. 35, 34 men, 20 Indians from three different tribes, mm-hmm. 10 non-Indian or mixed-blooded fr- backwoodsmen, frontiersmen, hard-bitten you know, men from the deep woods who um, really know how to um, survive in the jungle. You would not have wanted to go into the place where we were heading without such a group. These guys were amazing. Both the Indians and the, you know, mixed-blooded Ribeirinhos, as they're called in Brazil, the their, their Amazonian frontiersmen, they were very well equipped to handle the jungle. They knew how to operate in deep forest, how to hunt, track, prepare camps, fish, haul heavy loads. They were tremendous. Now, one of the things I thought was so interesting in this book is the the varieties of Indian tribes and Indian cultures. I mean, it's just like this incredible world of cultures that we can barely wrap our brains around. There, there are many who are partway, you know, on the edge of society and some who are more integrated and, and others like the ones who are the eventual um, object of this search and non-search, which is a really, <laughs> that's a very catch-22 situation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. So talk about the, the three tribes who joined you and, right. and, and their different cultures. So in our expedition, there were 20 Indians from three different tribes, Matisse, Marubo, and Marie, and they had various experiences with the outside world, varying degrees of acculturation. The Matisse had only been contacted within the last 25 years, and there were a number of them on our expedition who were old enough to remember what life was like before contact with the outside world. In other words, what they thought of the world before they ever seen a white man, and what they thought airplanes were, for example, which they thought the high-flying jetliners they thought were ancestral spirits, and the low-flying bush planes that might swoop in over their village, they understood to be 
giant birds like monsters. In neither case did they associate them with human beings or that, th that they might be piloted by human beings or carry human beings inside them. And in fact, I didn't even realize that the low flying planes were also the same kind of phenomenon as the high flying ones. But these, these guys were one of the reasons that Pozuelo brought Indians from three different friendly tribes, tamed, if you will, tribes, was in the case of an inadvertent contact with the Arrow people, the uncontacted group whose lands we were going to cross. He hoped that maybe one of the three Indian languages that we had represented in the expedition might be close enough to the language spoken by the Arrow people that they might be able to de defuse a potentially um, violent encounter. Well, talk a little bit about the Arrow people. That's that's a kind of a scary name. Tell us how they got that name and and how uh, Pozuelo knew about him and what he knew about him when he went into the, uh, the bush like that. Sure. Well, the Arrow people, it's really interesting. So nobody knows what the Arrow people actually call themselves because there's never been peaceful contact with them. They are called the Flecheros, or Arrow people, because by the by the other Indian groups that live, you know, adjacent to their forests, because they have arrows, poison-tipped arrows, and they repel intruders into their lands with those arrows. So it's really, uh, and nobody knows what ethnicity they are, and so it's really more of a technological attribute than anything else. They're called the Arrow People because they have arrows to distinguish them from another uncontacted group in the same area that use clubs and are known as the Headbashers, the Karubo. So, you know, there's on one side of this river that we went up into the lands, deep into this enormous uh, wilderness, we were progressing up the Takwai River. And on the one side of the river, you had the head-bashing Karubo, and on the other side of the river, the Arrow people. What was known about them was simply that previously, in, in previous decades, the brave um, interlopers uh, who ventured into these areas, in many cases loggers, heavily armed logging crews, would inevitably sustain clashes with these groups until Brazilian government actually shut down access to the area, threw all the non-Indians out, and created this enormous Indian reserve where both contacted and uncontacted tribes um, inhabit this vast territory. This is the size of Massachusetts, is Maine? Maine, Massachusetts? Um, it's big. Uh, it's about the, uh, half the size of Florida. Wow. And maybe a total population, estimated population of like 4,000. Uh, not a single road, all rivers, and very heavily forested, rugged headwaters region. Also is actually the home of the largest concentration of uncontacted indigenous communities in the world inside this area, the Javari Valley Indigenous Reserve. That's really fantastic. Now, one of the things that um, you do have to deal with when you go into these places there's no nobody is supposed to be there, but there are a lot of people who are trying to be there. The drug traffickers, loggers, poachers. Yeah. Uh, talk about the the um, people who the trespassers and, and the dangers they pose, which are as 
considerable as the arrow people and maybe verging on the on the into the range of the poisonous snakes the mm. poisonous insects and all <laughs> the other flora um, fauna yeah there's a lot of that for sure so you know this is a lawless territory we went in with uh, sydney Pasuelo was at the time the head of the department of isolated indians that's the name of the entity that he was in charge of which is an elite unit inside Brazil's Indian Affairs Agency, FUNAI, which um, is part of the Ministry of Justice. It was the first time, perhaps ever, that there had been any presence of Brazilian authorities in, in the remote reaches of the Javari Reserve that we traversed. The Javari itself is a pretty well-protected area because all the um, rivers flow in the same direction out of headwaters that are in the far western border area of the reserve. And so most of the major incursions are actually pretty easily contained by the positioning of control posts at strategic locations at the borders of the reserve where the rivers are that come flow in, that flow out of the reserve. Mm -hmm. But there are so so the main kind of incursions that you would expect like loggers who uh, who would want to move large quantities of wood floating them down rivers they've been choked off but there is the danger of skin hunters and other and and some loggers small scale operations coming across the divide into the reserve by trekking over land not coming up the major rivers and then yes the drug traffickers are in this territory it's known to be an area uh, traversed all the time by drug traffickers moving product from Peru uh, through Brazil to Colombia. You start out your journey uh, on a boat and you're you're going up river. Talk about some of the crew, there are some of the crew of this boat were some you had some fairly interesting folks on on board with you. Mm. And and what happened as things got smaller and smaller to the point where you actually no more time, no more room for the boat. That's right. Well, so the, we 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 moved up river in a flotilla of four large um, Brazilian vintage Amazonian kind of steam vessels. And they, they were actually steam? They weren't, but they were, they were, they had been steam converted to wow. you know, diesel. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And they with these, you know, old wraparound decks and they were like these amazing boats. And we took those as far as we could until the, the water got too low. Mm -hmm. And at that point, those vessels turned back and we continued on in smaller, shallow draft skiffs, long shafted uh, motors, um, adaptable, perfect for very shallow water. And and as we were going upriver, we were also passing a number of Connemarie Indian villages where um, we recruited some of the Connemarie, six Connemarie to come with us on this trip. But but we got to the point where we left the last Connemarie village behind and crossed over into the completely wild Amazon. And when we did that, there were um, the river was blocked by a number of trees that had been swept off the bank over the, over a course of several years. We had to cut our way through dozens of trees that blocked the channel, which just um, you know it was a very graphic graphic evidence of how remote um, this place was and how wild it was that nobody, no outsiders had penetrated it for years. Some of these trees that had fallen into the river were, you know, several years old. And we cut our way through them and got to a point up, upstream where the boats could go no further. And that's where our overland trek began. 
And at that point, the boats went back downriver um, with the power tools we used to get upriver, all that stuff. And then we began an overland trek into the land of the Arrow people. Now, how many weeks, days did it take you to get up that river? From That was two weeks to get to the point where we um, left the boats behind. To think about this, one of the things that's really, I think, astounding to re- as we read about this is that if anybody gets hurt, if anybody breaks a leg, if anybody gets sick, you're two weeks away from anything more than a Band-Aid and, and a swab of alcohol. And, and right, although while we were still on the river, that, that two weeks seemed like a pretty short time. Within, you know, within several days, we were deep in the jungle where it was impossible to go back to the river and there would have been no vessels back there even if we had gone back. So by the time we left the boats behind and we were, you know, into our third, fourth, fifth day, 20th day, slashing through virgin jungle in this deep triple canopy forest um, with absolutely no possibility of any evacuation whatsoever if if there was a serious injury. There was no possibility. Now, did, did you have any kind of means of communication? Did, did Sydney have himself some, you know... Uh... <laughs> Well, we, we, Nicholas and I had actually taken a satellite phone with us, mm-hmm. but neither, and Sydney had a two-way radio, but neither of those um, instruments works in closed canopy jungle. The only time they would work was when we would come to the banks of a stream or river that was wide enough for there to be a significant break or crack in the forest canopy for those instruments to work. And our telephone... Um, worked for a couple of days, worked fine on the river. But then when we took it with us overland, we finally, after after several days, we finally came to a, a place where there was, you know, we thought a clear line of sight to the satellite and it wouldn't work and it never worked again. So we were essentially cut off from all contact with our families and loved ones in the outside world. The radio was um, something that Sydney managed to get working every couple of weeks just to relay a very tenuous message out to the Funai base. But that was all. That was all our contact. Now, did you guys have GPS? Did your GPS systems work? And Sydney had a GPS, but the the main instrument for guiding our direction was his compass. So he was using a compass and pointing the way to the lead <laughs> scouts who were slashing the jungle open. And as I said, every once in a while, we'd come to a break in the canopy where his GPS would work, and so he'd get a fix from the GPS then. But it was mostly compass. He was using a compass and a topographical map. I talked to him. Tell me, describe this walking through the jungle. I mean, this is like cutting your way essentially through somebody's hedge, only it's filled with insects that want to try to kill you and snakes and snakes <laughs> want to try to kill <laughs> Among you. Among other things. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, no, it's very dense, uh, very dense vegetation. How high is the jungle? How high above you is the canopy? The canopy is about 150 feet. Jeez. Now. <laughs> yeah. So, and in some places, you know, it was interesting. So there's different, you're wandering through different types of forest and terrain and there would be times when the when the undergrowth was incredibly dense and not just the you know not just stuff growing up from the ground but the stuff hanging down too just incredibly dense 
uh, lianas and vines that you have to slash through in addition to the stuff growing up from the ground. But there would be other places where the forest itself, where the forest floor was almost clear and just like, you know, leaves, brittle leaves that would go shh, shh, shh as you, as you walk through them. And there were, there were moments when you'd come to places like that where there was like almost no undergrowth but these enormous trunks soaring from the jungle floor and disappearing high overhead into the canopy and green and yellow light would filter down from way up there and come down in this really diffused light and with the floor of the forest just, you know, uh, clear um, it almost felt like you were walking on the bottom of the ocean. Wow. <clears throat> you know, um, I wonder, what were you guys eating? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there was a stretch in those early days, actually, as we were, we were traversing a headwaters region where actually four rivers were born, interlocking river systems were born in this area. So it was extremely rugged, up and down, steep slopes and very treacherous terrain. And also, relatively speaking, kind of high, dry upland forest. And um, there was a stretch for of like a week of this where the only game that the hunters managed to uh, find were monkeys. And so day after day after day, sickeningly, we would have monkey. And it was, it was basically, you know, the cooks, and I use that word kind of loosely, but the cooks that were assigned to the expedition, they, you know, it fell to them to the grisly task of dismembering these monkeys and kind of hacking them apart and throwing the meat into a pot of boiling, a boiling cauldron. And they would, you know, boil the stuff into rubbery chunks of meat and that's what we had with the broth this monkey meat and some rice or manioc flour there's a, a scene in there where there somebody shoot there you see a mother monkey with the yes. baby on its back and there's yeah. this great scene where Pozuelo says we'll eat the baby too right <laughs> Which is, I think was the... that was really grisly you know <laughs> I mean all of us who have you know, we have this very sentimental relationship with animals. Mm. So it was very shocking for someone, you know, like me to be out in the jungle and watching uh, this scene unfold in which a mother monkey carrying the baby on its back mm-hmm. is shot out of the treetops. It, it was it was very disturbing. And, you know, there were others. It wasn't just me. There were others. Uh, some of the Brazilians were saying, you know, don't shoot it. It's got a, can't just, you know, there's a baby on her back. Mm-hmm. And Pozuelo's like, you know, don't give me this Disney World crap. This is survival in the jungle. Shoot the damn thing, you know. <laughs> Pozuelo yeah. is, a, is a fascinating character. Mm-hmm. So yeah. talk about, can he, you know, you said, as you said, you'd met him and interviewed him in a room, probably not on too unlike this, maybe a little bit neater, but um, and had this not kind much. of a sit down, <laughs> <laughs> had a kind of a sit down interview with him ten years ago. Right now, you find yourself out in the jungle with him and start to realize that he, maybe he's Captain Kurtz. Uh, yeah, yeah, Captain Kurtz, Captain Ahab, you know, Klaus Kinski, <laughs> you know, you name it, all kind of like woven together. He was, he could be very scary. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it was at times, 
And of course, um, the only uh, hope of survival in this deep jungle was just the men you were with. And so, you know, there was no escaping this, you know, expedition. You were in it and you weren't going anywhere but staying in it. And it kind of had the feel at times with Pozuelo and with his like moody, brooding, kind of dark disposition and then explosive, uh, explosive anger that he had. It gave the feel, the expedition at times, the feel of like a roving penal colony. You know, you never knew like <laughs> if this guy was going to like, you know, lash you to a tree and, you know, uh, and, and inflict, you know, bodily punishment. <laughs> no, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but he, he, he was he had a definitely a dark side and it put everyone on edge. Um, let's talk just a little bit about the mission here, because it's, you know, even when you look at the title, you know, In Search of the Lost Tribes, you think, wait, 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 they're uncontacted, you want to leave them uncontacted, but you're going to contact them, and Pozuelo had a, he didn't know exactly, how much did he know what he wanted to do? That's a good question. So the mission was to seek out the Arrow people, this uncontacted tribe, to delineate, to, to create a map that would um, tell us the extent of their seasonal wanderings or migrations. So basically to find out what their economic frontiers are in order to bolster protection for their land. So to do that, you really need to go in under the ground, under the canopy. Um, you can see settlements with a good eye and, you know, with the kind of satellite imagery that exists today. You can pinpoint, pinpoint clearings in the jungle and say, uh, you know, there's a group here, there's another group here. Uh, but you don't know how far they wander away from those clearings, what their, where their seasonal migrations take them in, to, to, to hunt or to fish or to find turtle eggs, which are a remarkable kind of trigger of all sorts of events in the Amazon, are the Amazon river turtles leaving their eggs on beaches in the deep Amazon. It, it, it sets off a incredible chain reaction of predators, including human beings, on the... On the um, you know, on the lookout for these things. But in any case, so that's what Pozuelo wants to do. He wants to find out, like, how far they wander. And he wants to know, like, the relative um, health of the communities, like how, how you know, how, how they're doing. And to see if there are unwanted undesirables who are penetrating the territory, either to hunt or to scout possible trees to, to cut who could come into violent contact or any contact for that matter with these groups represents a danger. So the idea is to go in there and look around without making contact. That's, that seems, that's a, <clears throat> it, it's easier a, said than done. <laughs> easier said than done. And um, a kind of a very much a paradoxical and weird kind of quest because it, you, you, you end up in this strange dance, essentially, where you're seeking out these people on the one hand and trying to avoid them on the other. You know, there's no guarantee that there will not be contact and it won't be violent. One of the things that uh, I thought was really interesting, and I'm finally just going to let myself talk about all the weird critters. Did you actually see a bullet ant? That is a scary creature that i think oh, is yeah. the scariest thing i've ever heard about is 
Tell us about the bullet ants. Well, the bullet ants are, um, they're, you know, probably a couple inches long. They're very large ants, and they have scissor-like jaws, but more um, of, of greater, um, I think, um, concern are their stingers. They have a stinger on the end of their, you know, a stinger like a wasp would have. And, and this, the sting from a bullet ant can send you into anaphylactic shock. At minimal, it'll lay you up for an entire day. But, it, it, I mean, it's capable of actually killing you, some, you know, if you're allergic to them. And it's, they're incredibly painful. Now, uh, you guys encountered all sorts of uh, weird stuff there. Carpenter ants are no fun either. The carpenter ants, in some ways, represented a greater menace <laughs> because <laughs> there, were, there, were, there were a number of um, instances in which we ended up camping in um, stretches that were overrun by these ants, and they, they nest in the trees. And so... Our gear is, um, we're sleeping in hammocks. Uh, you don't want to sleep on the forest floor in a lot of these places. So uh, everyone's sleeping in hammocks, and you tie your hammocks off to between trees, and uh, these ants um, begin to invade, come down the cords of the hammocks, and, um, and they deliver a very, they're very nasty, and they have a very uh, painful bite, and they swarm on you. So... Uh, you know, one night we got to a place very late. Usually we tried to camp earlier in the day, but this one day we were desperate to find a place, and we had gone much longer than usual and couldn't find a place near water with level ground that was fairly dry and finally got to this place as the sun was setting. And Pozuelo said, oh, this looks pretty good. Let's stop here. And, in fact, it did. Look, it looked like it was a beautiful place with a glade and a meandering brook going through it. And look, oh, I, I thought, wow, this is going to be a great night. But, you know, the Indians immediately were, they were looking up into the treetops and pointing up there and saying, Isamarop, Isamarop, Matisse for no good. And I'm like, no good, why not? And they're like, formiga, you know, ants, traqua, actually, this particular type of ant, the Brazilians call them traqua. And we were beset by these things. It was miserable. It was a miserable night. They were, and I had, and I ended up stretching my hammock between two trees, right at like a major traffic artery of these ants. <laughs> yeah, it was awful. In your quest to uh, uh, avoid the arrow people, <clears throat> that was not that was not a successful quest. Not uh, entirely. Not entirely. So talk about uh, just you know the mood of of the expedition as time goes on i mean yes. did you guys feel increasingly desperate and more afraid of one of one another for one another and, and you know did you have i mean and talk about some of the tensions you've got three different kind of indian tribes there maybe these people are not getting on so well and maybe they don't respect you guys very much and maybe they feel much more at home with the uh arrow people than well you. i have to say that um you know as much of a tyrant as Pozuelo came, came, you know, as he, as much of a tyrant as he was at times, I think his strong sort of iron-fisted leadership was probably essential to keeping the expedition together. Mm. On the one hand, I think it may it it led to 
deep resentment and grumbling, particularly among the non-Indian frontiersmen in the group. With the Indians, Pozuelo is always very um, gentle and forgiving of their mistakes, but was totally unforgiving of the whites and would castigate people um, and single them out for humiliation in sometimes gratuitous ways. And um, But on the other hand, which sort of contributed to a potentially explosive situation. But there was something probably to be said for the fear that people had of him that, you know, somebody, (laughs) (laughs) a lesser man may not have been able to hold our group together. And, you know, and I say, um, I I describe this in in The Unconquered about how Pozuelo... um, you know, exercised this kind of, you know, leadership. He would say, he said to me, you know, that um, it's absolutely essential to, in order to maintain control of the men, you have to know at all times where you're going and how, and where you're going to end up. That, he said, actually, I don't always know exactly where I'm going, but I know where we're going to get to. And I have to keep that in my head and make sure the men understand that I know that. <clears throat> you know, I really think this is a beautifully written and architected book. And I think it, you do a great job of immersing us in the adventure and giving us a lot of really fascinating uh, vision of a world that most of us will probably thankfully never visit. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, did you, were you lugging your laptop along? No. <laughs> We had to perform such radical triage of our stuff when we left the boats and mm-hmm. started on the overland trek that, I mean, I left behind so many things, including my insect repellent. Oh. Um, but I, I, what I did was, so I, lap, t- carrying a laptop was out of the question. Mm-hmm. I, I took very copious notes. I, I, you know, and just a little journal? I had, I had reporter's notebooks. And I filled about nine of them. There was about uh, probably about 800 pages of handwritten notes, very meticulously scrawled and, and well, protected in Ziploc bags from the, then, from the moisture. Did you, were you, uh, I guess you had, you rode every time you stopped and said and took notes? Uh, every time we stopped, I would pull out my notebook, scribble a little. I had to develop a technique to keep, because everything is totally soaking wet in the jungle. This mm-hmm. is like this vast terrarium like 99% humidity all the time. And so you're completely soaked from, you know, five minutes after leaving the camp in the morning. My pants were soaked. My hands, the back of my hands are soaked. So I had to devise a technique using the Ziploc bag to shield the note page, both from my wet hand and from my wet leg. <laughs> and it was a little bit of a task, but that's how I took my notes. Where we, Whenever we stopped, I'd pull out my notebook and write something, or if Pozuelo was there and I'd ask him a question, I'd stop to write. And then at the end of the day, the hammock, uh, my hammock turned out to be an amazing refuge that was comfortable, and I could um, retreat into the hammock and flip on my headlamp. And while the insects were pounding on my hammock they, to get in, they couldn't because I had a great mosquito net. I would sit there um, or lie there, actually, and write and write everything I could remember about the day's events that I hadn't already written during the course of the day. Were the insects the most dangerous form of life? It seemed like. I think you got, you got one from every, every uh, branch of the, of the animal world, I think, in there. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, there were the ants, um, all sorts of different kinds of ants and wasps and... Spiders. Spiders, yes. Big, hairy spiders. And then there were, you know, the there were jaguars lurking about. We saw fresh jaguar prints quite often. And, and anacondas in the area and stampedes of wild boar, which can be incredibly dangerous. They have very sharp tusks. And we we had actually saw in a couple of the villages that we passed through up going upriver, uh, men, Indians from the villages with very serious wounds from having been gored by wild boar. So that was something you really had to be careful of, too. As you're on this quest to... to document the borders of this tribal region. Mm-hmm. You're with a guy who's, you know, doing a, a good Klaus Kinski in, imitation, as you put it. <laughs> <laughs> Large part of your crew, did how much uh, of the languages did you pick up during this time? I mean... Do you did you do you speak Spanish, Portuguese, uh, whatever? Spanish and Portuguese. That yes, I speak both of those, and um, you know the Indian languages. I just learn you know phrases, words, um, nothing more. Portuguese was the common language, the lingua franca of the expedition, which people spoke in varying degrees of fluency. There were some Indians who spoke it quite well, mm-hmm. and others who hardly spoke it at all, but their fellows would serve as translators where it was necessary. So Portuguese was the language that everyone, you know, used to one degree or another. The Arrow people weren't the only tribes that you came in contact with. You had the Toucan people, too. Talk about right. um, just the the feeling, you know, of being in these really, like, remote places, mm. meeting people that most people will never meet. And, well, you know, um, yeah, and earlier you talked about this mosaic of different types, different tribes, and mm-hmm. the the diversity. I, I, you know, it, it, it's, it occurred to me many times in the course of this journey that I was witnessing something that may have been akin to what, um, what a chronicler um, traveling through the hinterlands of North America 300, 250 years ago might have encountered mm-hmm. um, this raw frontier with, um, you know, um, some tribes that had some degree of contact with the European um, frontier and others that were still completely hostile and, and still deep in the bush. Um, and, uh, you know, with a very, with a wide ranging, um, with with probably as much difference between the various Indian cultures on the frontier as there were, you know, between um, different, you know, European groups um, back in the, you know, early exploration of the New World, of rich diversity. Yeah. Now, the the threat to these peoples is not just um, the encroachment of civilization. I mean, the main thing that will decimate these peoples is is disease. Correct, which has to do with the encroaching frontier. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the reasons, the probably the principal reason that Pozuelo came to um, this position of not contacting the last uncontacted groups and leaving them alone, mm-hmm. whereas the Vilas Boas, their position was we contact them in order to save them from the frontier. Pozuelo's position was we save them by not contacting them. Mm-hmm. And the m- principal reason being that no matter how 
peaceful the intention or humanitarian the the gesture contact inevitably leads to massive die-offs the these indians the arrow people and the other uncontacted tribes there are 26 of them in brazil all told um, still have no immunity to the common ailments that um, we have that we carry measles flu even the common cold can be fatal for them and so within months of first contact these groups experience a huge die-off and that leads to a whole chain of negative consequences that in most instances leads to the disintegration of the tribe's culture and the overrunning of their lands by outsiders and, and in the end it also can lead to total extinction of the tribes. So Pozuelo is actually trying to save these groups and save their cultures by saving their lands and keeping these groups o away from the, those of us who carry the germs that are fatal to them. How successful do you feel that he's been? Having been involved with him at literally the ground level, do you feel like he's doing the right thing? I mean, is, is yeah, this... Yeah, I do. I do. Um, you know, if 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 we lived in another in, in a more in an ideal world, maybe we could um, there could be a happy medium where we could um, there could be some contact and they the tribes could enjoy some benefits of civilization but maintain their culture. But for the most part, that hasn't happened. What what it happens is, you know, Rondon who began as this quest to integrate the Brazilians the Brazilian Indians into the society. He had this idealistic view that the Indians, given equal opportunity, would you know become fully productive equals in the larger national so national society. But what in fact always happened was was they would end up in the lowest ra rungs of society, despised, you know, caricature, um, alcoholic beggars, shadows of their former selves. And what Pozuelo is trying to do, I think, is buy time for these people to to make a decision. If they want to seek out contact, leave it up to them, but not force it on them by an invasion of their lands, first of all. And secondly, what he's also managing to do by protecting these people uh, is protecting hundreds of thousands of acres, tens of thousands of square miles of pristine virgin rainforest that is not only essential to the survival of those tribes, but is actually essential to the survival of all of us. You know, um, uh, one of the things that I, you said, I was just thinking back on this, you emerged from the jungle uh, after how long? Uh, almost three months. Three months got 800 pages of notes mm -hmm. talk about uh taking those notes and crafting you know what is really kind of a, a page turning adventure that in many ways it's almost like a novel if it wasn't all terrifyingly true <laughs> uh, thank you <laughs> uh yeah so that was uh, kind of a it was very much a challenge um to go back into these notes and try to First of all, relive the experience as I read back through the notes and shaped them into a narrative. At the same time, I wanted the book to be more than just an adventure, which it certainly was. But 
whenever I saw the opportunity, I, I, I would find, um, you know, the, the gaps where it would seem to, where it seemed appropriate to put in some backstory mm-hmm. about this is what tradition Pozuelo came out of, or this is, you know, the history of, you know, epidemic disease introduced by Europeans in the New World, or these are how these uncontacted tribes have come to live in these deepest redoubts of the Amazon and why they are deliberately shunning contact with the outside world, which is what it appears that they're doing, that this is, they are holding forth in willful defiance, if you will, willful repudiation of contact with us. And that's one of the reasons also I think that what Pozuelo is doing is correct because he is, this is an issue involving the self-determination of these people. Mm -hmm. And in doing what he's doing, he is respecting their right to self-determination. And what they are, you know, evidently expressing to us is that they find us dangerous and they don't want to have anything to do with us. I can't blame them. (laughs) 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 Now, um, this is a pretty big adventure you've been on. Hmm. What are you going to do next? Hmm. <laughs> well, I'm, a, I'm involved in another pe- story in the Amazon for National Geographic right now. It kind of borders on the issue of uncontacted tribes. We're nosing around some parts of the deep Amazon right now. Not not in this same kind of like three month at a time lost in the wilderness thing. A little more logistical support with, you know, aircraft and so on. But I want to explore a story that involves my grandfather, whom I never knew, who left my mother when she was five, and she only saw one more time again after that when she was 15, back in the, the in 1940. He was in the 20s and 30s. He was, a, he was from Scotland. He was a um, world traveler, uh, explorer, con artist, rogue character. And um, I'm just beginning to learn more about him. He, um, believe it or not, actually claimed to have discovered a lost tribe in the Himalayas in the 1930s who had discovered the secret of eternal youth. And he, had re- he wrote pamphlets about um, these people, and he, had been, he, be, he was in Tibet and in, in, in northern India, um, back in the 30s, and um, I want to find out about who this guy was because so much of my life was shaped by um, by my mother who um, was in turn shaped by this absent father. And I, 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 it's a subject that fascinates me. I think that's probably where I'm going next. And that's an apple don't fall so far from the tree. <laughs> <laughs> that's what she always would say to me, you know. She'd say, you have your grandfather's blood, you have your grandfather's genes, even though her feelings about him were incredibly ambivalent mm-hmm. because he had abandoned her. Well, it sounds like uh, he might have been uh, joined looking for uh, Shangri-La and maybe uh, thought he found it. Maybe so, yeah. I've been speaking with Scott Wallace. His new book is The Unconquered. Thank you for joining me, Scott. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.